Welcome to Season 2 of Reframe Your Life, a podcast for women who think differently and want to explore ideas and topics relevant to all areas of their life. Hi Sandy, how are you? I'm good Joanne, enjoying this beautiful fall day and really looking forward to our podcast today. Just had a week of vacation and it was really good, really busy and I'm actually looking forward to being off of vacation so I can get some rest. Well, it should be a nice, nice restful weekend after the family celebrations. Maybe it's Thanksgiving in Canada here for our listeners. So if you're in Canada and you uh, just celebrated Thanksgiving, I hope it was a good one. I'm really looking forward to this weekend. Me too. Nice long weekend. The weather is going to be gorgeous. Are you going to get out hiking or anything? We are. We're going to go and do a hike. I think I'm going to take Ash on a hike where you and I went uh, a few years ago. So Nice. Yeah. And you? You normally do a Thanksgiving hike. Yeah, I need to get out for a hike because we've got those two 30K hikes coming up in a few weeks <laughs> and I need to get in shape so I can keep up with you. What's going on today? Well, I'm really excited about today. I'm sitting here with my good friend and we're in my dining room and we're going to be talking to her. So our guest today is Deb Bakti and I'm just going to read her bio so that our listeners can hear her brilliance. So Deb has worked in the corporate world for over 25 years. She started in group insurance and then staffing and that's where I met you Deb. I think we met about 20 years ago working in a staffing agency And for the last 10 years, she's worked as a senior executive in the healthcare field. She's a certified corporate coach. She was actually the first coach I ever met. So way back in the day when coaching was just really taking off, you were like one of the um, front runners in that coaching movement, I think, which doesn't surprise me because you're a bit of a (laughs) maven in a lot of things. And she has a green belt in lean management. She's a certified practitioner for TED, which stands for the Empowerment Dynamic. And we're going to talk about that today. And she's currently studying positive psychology. So she's the proud mom. She has two kids, a 19-year-old son and a 24-year-old daughter, who she often gets mistaken for as her sister. And she lives with her pug, Kobe, and her cat, Charlie. So Deb's why is to dare all of us to be creators so that we live with intention, choice, and empowerment. So I think we're going to have a great call. So welcome, Deb. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you too. Yeah, it's great. So we want to hear your reframing story. I know that you have a a background with a really interesting story that caused you to sort of step back and and reframe your life in a way that you didn't really expect you would have to reframe so I think it'd be um I'd love to hear you share that with our listeners so the I guess the beginning of the reframing and sometimes when these things happen you don't expect them or you don't call or you don't manifest them um my husband and I uh, got married in 1986 we had our kids and it was about eight years ago that Uh, he started having some symptoms and we didn't know what was going on with him and uh, he ended up having an acute episode and we took him to the hospital where they thought he was he had had a stroke and after doing a number of assessments the neurologist said he has an unusual brain disorder we don't know what it is 
here's my card, give, us, give me a call to book an appointment and bring him in. In the meantime, he's no longer able to drive. So it was one of those moments where you know that your your life has changed in that blink of an eye, but you don't know to what degree. Right. So that took us on a journey of about a year and a half. We saw 27 specialists in five different hospitals in three different cities before we finally got a diagnosis of a disease called Erdheim-Chester, which at the time only 400 people in the world had been diagnosed with. Wow. So it was an incredibly rare disease. Uh, it's, uh, it was degenerative. It was incurable. And so during the time of even getting the diagnosis, he uh, initially needed a cane. Then he needed the assistance of a walker and then eventually a wheelchair. And during that time, we cycled through receiving home care. And the ironic, ironic part at that point in time was that I was leading a home care organization. So I was managing the business of home care and experiencing it as a family member. Uh, and then it got to the point where he needed to uh, go to an adult daycare center. And then five years ago, he became a resident in a long-term care facility and he passed away uh, April 6th of 2015. Wow. And I remember when you know, when the beginning, especially of that journey for you, and um, you were experiencing that at a time in your life when you're not expecting to be dealing with nursing homes and long care facilities. I mean, Ty was young and your kids were young and I'm sure he must have been the youngest person in the home. Well, it's interesting because the other, um, in, in the organization I, I work with, we also uh, have a number of long-term care facilities. So it's actually about 10 to 12% of the populations under 65 in long-term care facilities. But he was one of the younger residents for sure. Our kids were 11 and 16 at the time that he became uh, ill initially, and they're now 19 and 24. And I can remember there was a period of time that my dad was in a nursing home in one end of the city and my husband was in the other nursing home at the other end of the city. And it was a period of about six months where I had both my dad and my husband as residents in nursing homes. So it was a, it was a pretty surreal time. I was working full time. I was raising the kids when, uh, and the first year that Ty lived in long-term care, uh, I would pick him up Friday night from having worked all week, bring him home for the weekend and then drop him off Sunday night. And then just got to the point with his physical limitations, it was becoming a physical risk for him to come home. So it was transitioning from a wife and partner to more of a caregiver. And then transitioning into really being a single parent and uh, needing to take care of myself as well as my kids as we went through what I would describe as death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's very challenging to watch someone slowly deteriorate and how that impacts your relationship and dynamics. And um, so I would go through periods of time where, you know, with part of his illness, he had responsive behavior. So calls from the nursing home about him. We call it eloping, escaping the nursing home. And I mean, I can look back now and I've got some funny, interesting stories of some of the things that he did. He gave the staff and the other residents a real run for their money, for sure. And, uh, you know, and he was really loved and well cared for there. Uh, so, you know, from that, then transitioning into, I never really um, took to the, the label of widow. You know, to me that felt, um, 
and probably because there was a lot of anticipatory grieving. So there was some preparation. It still doesn't fully prepare you for that period of time. Uh, and, and really wanting to work with and support the kids and as a family is how we, how we deal with the grieving after the fact and the trauma that you know, all of us had experienced through that. And so you know, at that point in time, there was, I, I was you know, clinical therapy, um, I will certainly admit to the, the odd wine therapy session with friends <laughs> at happy hour, not naming any names. And the, um, a book that I had, I mean, I read a number of books, some that were on uh, caring for the caregiver and how to support kids through a loss of a parent and those types of things. And then there was this book called The Empowerment Dynamic that I don't know how I came across it, but I, it was a book that I kept pulling off the shelf and rereading because for me, it was helping to put in perspective that it's not just what happens to you, it's how you respond and deal with what your situation is and what you can make out of that. And from there, it's really shifted in um, how I'm able to share that with other people, how I'm sharing that with people that I work with, and you know, giving purpose to a really unfortunate situation that we had no control over. Mm. Deb, I think I met you in 2013. I just remember thinking, wow, this person's going through so much. Do you remember those times having to navigate all these systems and be there for your children and, and, and you were working still at the same time and it was almost like you were in this kind of limbo. If that, I don't know if that's a, an appropriate word or not, but it, it was like there was, what can you do? How can you support people? What do you need to do next kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. When I, I look back and, uh, you know, a number of people would say, I don't know how you do it and you just do it. And I think that mm. your listeners would relate to that as well. I mean, I, I firmly believe that every single one of us either has, is, or will go through significant life transitions. Mm -hmm. And part of it is, you know, to be able to look back and lessons learned and what do you do? And I mean, I, I think that I have always been a highly driven individual. You pull the energy where you need to. And so, you know, I had my system when we were going through all of those specialists, I created a book and I did a timeline chart because I quickly realized that every appointment, having to tell the story over and over again, I needed to systemize it. And so that, okay, you, you know, rather than me having to talk for 20 minutes, here's the chart, here's the graph, you can, you know, take it all in. And, and I, I think that was helpful because I was able to apply some of my business acumen into a personal situation. Uh, you know, certainly having regular therapy supports is really important. And sometimes I think you're just functioning on fumes. Mm. And so I, I can look back and recognize that I probably was in what I refer to as a high functioning state of depression that was episodic. Mm. You know, it was when you allow yourself to get really physically run down, emotionally run down. It's, uh, it's like keeping your head above water. And and that really illuminated for me when um, it was about three or four months after Ty passed away and I went to a retreat trip in Italy on a volcanic um, island just off the coast mm. of Italy. And 
when people would say what was the highlight of your trip, it was actually having a panic attack in the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> because what it wasn't probably till three or four weeks after I got back home and I was journaling about it, and journaling was certainly another um, eh. strategy for me, is that I realized that it was the physical manifestation of how I was emotionally feeling during those years. I was treading water, just <laughs> barely keeping my head above water. And I think when my body was able to experience that in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and be able to have that visceral reaction, it actually was allowing me to release some of that emotional uh, stress that I had been carrying around about it. And so, you know, it certainly is important when you're going through a major life transition to really know your bandwidth. Uh, I think I, I liken it to, I felt like my, my computer was open and there, were, there was the program that was constantly running in the background of, the seriousness and the sadness of our life situation that you're right there's a level of feeling stuck in it but it was constantly going which would be draining my battery without even really knowing it yeah and you know you mentioned like your dad being in a nursing home during that time as well and being a single mom in essence um or in reality uh, at that point with your kids in their teens which mm -hmm. You know, it was a, a delightful time. Yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a special time. I, I can imagine how special all of that was for you. And you have to keep going. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that sense. Um, I, I think a lot of women, you know, in those situations, and men too, I imagine, but I speak as a woman who has gone through crisis as well. You just keep things going. And you're not always able to take the time that you need yourself because there's so many demands on you. So we've talked a lot about self-care. So what was that like? Was there, I mean, aside from therapy and the occasional happy hour, which yes. you would be able to get to journaling? Yeah, journaling. Uh, you know, it was giving myself permission to say no to things. It was almost like because I had a reasonable reason to be able to say no to things. Uh, whereas before, you know, we have that desire to please and accommodate and if you've committed to something, you can't certainly back out. And I was practicing saying no or canceling things when I felt like I just didn't have the energy to do it. Uh, there was a, a one friend in particular who she would call me at least once a week while we were driving into our work together and I'm sure I, I must have been just like ad nauseum the same issue over and over it got to the point where I was tired of listening to myself and she just created that space to whatever I needed to talk about or to listen to what she was distracting me with that kind of thing mm. that was really helpful and you know I think just there is this whole practice of accepting what is and you know I'm, I'm doing some writing now and and wanting to uh, to create a, a book or something about this to really talk about when you're in that gap in a traditional coaching model the idea is to close the gap between where you are and where you want to be that's what we as coaches focus on mm -hmm. and to determine what your current reality and what your options are I'm looking at it a bit differently that when you're in a gap, which is a life transition time, that doesn't matter what you do, you cannot compress the time between where you are because a lot of in that time is the personal development and growth and whether it's a death or an illness or um, a separation in a relationship or a job loss, 
there are things, there are, there are opportunities within that gap and using the acronym of gap, it's around the growth, acceptance, awareness, and perspective. And to really lean into that gap time to say, there's nothing I can do to compress the time and get to the end. And sometimes if we try to cycle through it too quickly, we don't get the opportunity to learn the experiences or make the connections and relationships that we're meant to have. And there are so many people that I've met that I would never have met if we didn't go through this experience. And uh, to be able to look with gratitude with those connections that you've been able to make. So, you know, I think that learning to accept what is doesn't mean you have to like it. There are a lot of things that I absolutely didn't like and the amount of time and energy that you put into resisting it is not going to change anything right so the acceptance of it and really being aware of my own reaction or response to things and there's lots of things that I would have reacted to that I look back and wish that I had handled differently and there are also lots of conversations I had with my kids to be able to say oh didn't handle that well I'm sorry about that. Also showing them that as parents, we don't have everything figured out and that it's okay for them to be able to look and say, yeah, you know, I kind of screwed that up and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And then the perspective, you know, how we look at things and how we can change our perspective on it. Uh, you know, I certainly didn't enjoy being a family member for a resident and yet, um, you know, in that traditional role, it's, it's hard and I've also learned that for other family members, the kind of conversations that you can have and how you can support each other in that. Mm -hmm. mm. You know, yeah, it's uh, a very difficult time, you know, that you went through, but I'm just, I'm thinking, of course, how that relates to my life because I'm the center of my universe. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was mentioning to you uh, about aging parents mm -hmm. and obviously in your work, you're familiar with, the dynamics that has on families and how there is like you know I've seen this with my parents right now where there's um, this this gap they're not who they were but they're not they're not ready for uh, long-term care mm -hmm. and they're and it's really hard to know as family how to support them they don't in some ways want to admit that they need support and there there is no what i'm i'm finding as i try to work this through with my my siblings is there's no roadmap for it right. we have no idea you know exactly what to do and and this is an expected season in some ways we all know our parents are aging and we're going to have to deal with it but i feel like as a society we don't do a very good job preparing people for these kinds of transitions in life i don't know what you think about that well it, you're you're right we're all on the, it's like we don't like to have conversations about death and dying and yet we're all going to die one day so it's um I think, you know, there's been this perception about, well, they say there's two institutions that nobody ever wants to go to, prisons and nursing homes, right. and that nursing homes are somewhat of a necessity. And yet I think that it's really changing. And as the baby boomers will become consumers for themselves as residents in nursing homes, we're going to see a lot of change happening. Uh, you know, I, I feel like for, for Ty, there was a lot of isolation being at home. I was working, the kids were going to school. We had people coming into the home. And once you get through the initial transition of living in a facility, 
there's so much more support that can be offered. I think how much more support we can also provide family members, and it's a, a project that I'm working on to do a, a presentation on that, really shifting the admission transaction or process into an experience of connection, caring, and commitment. Taking my experience as a family member working in the business and how can we approach that differently um, in, in how we build those relationships. And how are we able to have these kinds of conversations with individuals as their parents age and knowing what the options are? Because again, typically our parents' perceptions of nursing homes are like old age homes yeah. with the places that they would have potentially visited with their parents or grandparents. And you know, there, there was once a point in time in society where we were able to take care of our elderly and some cultures still are able to do that quite well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Deb, you mentioned the empowerment dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you and I have been trying to connect because I so wanted to learn more about it. And so now I get to hear about it today. Tell us, uh, yeah, tell, tell us all about the book and, and uh, I think you've, you've done some training in it. So yeah, tell us more about it. Sure. Yeah, I went last December, I, I went to the States and was trained by uh, David Emerald and his wife Donna. And David is the author of the book called The Empowerment Dynamic. And their tagline is A Positive Approach to Life's Challenges. And he uses the, there's a, the Cartman drama triangle that Dr. Cartman uh, created in the 1960s, which really shows the problem orientation, the drama triangle. It's actually the default setting that most of us live and breathe in. If any of us are dealing with drama and conflict and crisis, that's usually where that occurs. And it's three key roles of a victim, a persecutor, and a rescuer. And the dynamic between those three roles, if you think of any time that you're dealing with conflict in a work or a personal setting, either we're feeling potentially like a victim, something's being done to us, it's not our fault, poor us, or we can be persecuting. And parents, we can do that quite well with our kids, or we're trying to rescue someone who we perceive as being a victim. And that typically is where we focus on the problem and we cycle around and around and don't really seem to, it's like band-aiding us to to try to band-aid a solution. And then David created the, uh, the antidote to the drama triangle, which is the empowerment dynamic. And the roles there are creator, coach, and challenger. And the belief is that every one of us has the is a creator and creators have a can-do attitude we look at what's possible what action we can take and that we can make create positive outcomes for ourselves and it really is about shifting from reacting and going reactive with the things that trigger us whether it's traffic annoying people conflicting situations you know sometimes there's people in our lives that we just have to hear their voice or look at them and we go reactive and we tend to um, you know, have a certain perception uh, about that relationship versus getting into a more empowered state where we are then, we can show up as a coach versus a rescuer and show up as a challenger versus a persecutor and that we're more focused on what it is that we want versus how easy it is to think about those things that we don't want to have. And when we're focusing on what we don't want to have, we're really putting our energy toward getting away from a situation. I just want this thing to be over. I don't want to have to deal with it. Where we're in the empowerment dynamic, it's more about moving toward what it is that we want to create. 
And the idea with that is that just taking baby steps, that the action involved in that is taking small baby steps so that we don't get overwhelmed. Whereas in the drama triangle, we tend to react to the anxiety that we're feeling that the problem is creating for us. And then we just spin. So as you're talking, I'm thinking about a concrete example. I was just thinking, I, I did a training session for a group of our leaders in for our nursing homes. And it was actually what happened that morning. I, uh, my assistant sends all of the workbooks and um, the, the material that we're going to use for the training ahead of time. So that morning as I was getting myself prepared, I sent an email to uh, the woman who was coordinating it saying, just, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that all the documents were sent and they'll be ready to be handed out to the group. And then I get a response back from her going, I didn't get any documents. So there was this split second where I immediately thinking, okay, who dropped the ball? Now I don't have the booklets and I don't have the, the, the bookmarks. And then I caught myself because there's this, um, there's this quote that Viktor Frankl wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that really, in my mind, aligns well with the TED philosophy. And the quote is, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. So I remembered, I thought, okay, the stimulus was the booklets haven't been printed. And I've got the space between that and my response. So I'm thinking, I am a certified TED practitioner. I know this stuff. I'm, you know, I can choose to go reactive and figure out who, you know, where the, the ball was dropped and then focus on the problem of that. Or I could look and say, okay, if that hasn't been the case, what are my options? I'm sure there's got a, there's probably a, a photocopy um, facility here at the hotel. Uh, if we can't do that for some reason, worst case scenario, I can project the pages that they would have and they could still make their notes and all was calm. And that is a perfect example. And I actually shared that with the group because the quality of the photocopy pages weren't great. They weren't stapled. The pages didn't really align the way that I would have liked them to. And to be able to share that as an example, there was my choice because I could have gone sideways. I could have gotten upset about it. It would have affected my ability and my energy to show up and teach effectively because I would have been completely distracted by that and still annoyed that the, the process didn't work effectively. They got a great laugh out of it. Uh, the person who she was, when she got my email, she went into her own drama triangle. What did I not do correctly? She's going to be upset with me. It's not going to work out. She's kind of spiraled with that. And then she reminded herself, oh, I've got a choice. Can I react or can I respond to this? At the end of the day, it all worked out fine. And I think it was really helpful for them to see at any point in time, whether it's a call from one of our kids that, you know, is um, their... I don't know, wanting money e-transferred to them by chance or, uh, you know, they keep calling back and you're in a meeting and they don't know why you're not picking up the phone. Uh, it could be coming home and the sink's full of dishes or uh, some people have shared when we go through what their triggers are, uh, their husbands who seem to always put the socks and underwear beside the laundry basket versus in the laundry basket. So they could be really simple things that end up triggering us and depleting our energy and then we just end up spinning. Mm -hmm. I, I love it. It sounds very much like a reframe, but I love how you draw us to that space because that, that space for me is very short. 
can go is. from one thing to another so quick. <laughs> so, yes, it's just really, I, I like how you really kind of highlighted that space because we often talk about reframing. Okay, how can we turn this into a positive or how can we look at this another way? Which it sounds very similar, but highlighting that space just really kind of slows, for me, slows me down. And how can I do it now in the moment rather than in a reflective time later on kind of thing. So. And that's where I find that doing the exercise of reactive triggers and drawing people's attention to it with humor, because we always end up laughing yes. about the things that make us crazy. And to be able to say over the next few days, pay attention to those things mm. that trigger you and almost treat it like a social experiment. Notice it, start questioning, what is it about this that is triggering me? Because the more we can become self-aware of what it is, and sometimes it's, if it's a person that's triggering us, it's because of the assumptions that we've made or the pattern that we've had with them in the past. And sometimes even having a conversation, bringing that to light uh, because of the stories that we tell ourselves. But I found when, when people are sharing their feedback with me is that once they're able to recognize it, it almost takes the charge off of that trigger for them. And, and, and I say to them, listen, that you're not going to be able to completely de-trigger your life. It's just not going to happen. I mean, life would be pretty boring, actually, if we didn't have <laughs> triggers that we could then laugh about afterwards. Our world revolves around triggers and expectations, which is going to be another episode. But... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I really like the victim creator part of the the empowerment dynamic. I think when you first shared that with me, it's really stuck with me how maybe that's my default role is victim and how I need to step more into creator role. And that just doing that alone has been a shift for me. Mm. And I, I try to ask people uh, like my walking partner, when you hear me be a vic talking like a victim, when I'm just going on and on about a situation, challenge me in that situation, you know, help me become aware because sometimes it's hard to become self-aware. Yeah. And I think that's where other people can, you know, those safe relationships where you can give people permission to call you out on, on those things and say, you know, I even, it's okay for a time to go, you know, have a little wine fest about a situation, but then you reach a point where you need to do mm -hmm. something about it. Well, and I think one of the things that I've noticed and share with the people that I teach is when you find yourself complaining about something, you are in victim mode. And particularly in corporate world, if words like victim, persecutor, rescuer, you know, it, it initially it's sort of a, well, that doesn't sound like the kind of language that we would use here. And then by the end of the two hour session, people have really embraced the language because I say it's it's not a judgment. It's not a bad thing to feel like a victim or a persecutor. It's the being aware of it that then gives you the choice. And so if you find yourself complaining, uh, that usually is a good indication that you're in the victim mode. The other, a lot of people relate to the rescuer role. And there's almost something noble about being a rescuer. And when we talk about shifting from rescuer to coach, it's really to say we think we're, we're in our best intentions to rescue and take care of somebody else. And usually it's because we have a need to be needed. And also to keep in mind that when we're rescuing someone, we're actually ripping them off of the opportunity to grow and develop uh -huh. and learn something versus when you can show up as a coach for them. You can still be supporting them, but in a way that by asking questions, what, what is it that you want to create here? Uh, what support do you require versus 
let me just jump in and fix it all and make it all go away. That person doesn't learn anything and they, they become dependent. Right. Right. And, and some people want to be rescued, Mm -hmm. you know, so you run into that as well. That's, uh, Something I use is, is verb. Victim, I'm entitled for everyone to rally around me. I want someone to rescue me, and I want to just blame, blame, blame. <laughs> well, it, it then it takes away the level of accountability. And, exactly. Uh, and that's where I, I find with this empowerment dynamic, I actually put up a slide that's got the, uh, the matrix, the red pill and the blue pill. So because this is a concept that once you learn it, it's something that you just can't unknow. And there is, there's power in being able to make the choice. There's also accountability mm-hmm. in, in needing to make the choice. And so, yes, it's, there were sometimes people feel, well, if I just, it's not my fault and there's nothing I can do about it. It doesn't um, create that space for someone to have to step up and, and, and take ownership of the situation. So Deb, I'm, I'm curious, um, what's, what are you doing now and, and in terms of looking to the future? We, are you doing some more uh, yeah, teaching, learning, training? What's, what's the future for Deb? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm really fortunate that in my work role, I also have this opportunity to do these Making Shifts Happen workshops. So it's probably, I think we're up to about 300 or so leaders that I've had the opportunity to share this with over the last year and continue to do that. And in December, I'm doing a presentation for a group of our leaders around this um, shifting the admission transaction to an experience of connection, caring and commitment, sharing some personal stories with my experience uh, when Ty became a long term care resident and tying in some teaching and learning around what uh, we can be doing differently and better to support the family members. And um, So that I'm really excited about. I've just enrolled in a six-month positive psychology course that I think will really help to enhance the work that I'm doing with the empowerment dynamic. And right now, I'm deeply uh, steeped in learning about the fixed and the growth mindset. So (laughs) having some keen awareness around where I have a fixed mindset and the, the great thing with positive psychology and the learning is that you know our mindset we have the opportunity to change yes. you know it's not sort of set in stone so I'm, I'm doing that and um, I think I'll continue I've, I've been doing some solo traveling to you know different retreats and in the fall I was at Jonathan Fields Good Life Project camp for grown-ups we're about 400 <laughs> other people cool. and uh, so I'm not sure what's next as far as the next trip that's great. So I, I'm excited about your work and what you're doing. And I feel like I've been a real, um, I've benefited personally in our friendship from all of your learning. And I know that the work you're doing in your corporate world, the impact that you're going to have there on, on um, you know, kind of frontline employees who are those people who are helping families navigate these really challenging times just in giving them some of this information about mm. the empowerment dynamic and about your own experience and helping them create more of a caring and, and seeing those people um, as people mm-hmm. with their own stories and their own history and their own 
needs and vulnerability it's it's huge i i feel like you're so uniquely positioned your life and your training and your vocation seem to have all aligned to put you in the right place at the right time so well it often you know i would often think the you know how, how ironic that this is the personal experience and and where i work and so you know feel feel really fortunate that and i think you know, it's also when you go through a grieving process, I think it's Brene Brown who said, you know, you write from your scars, not your wounds. And so there's been, you know, the time that I've needed and still need to to, to go through and, and process all of that and, and feel the feelings yes. right, that come with that. And able to, I think, you know, share that personal story and experience as an example of how being able to shift how our perspective is on what happens to us and for us and with us um, has been a real opportunity for me, for sure. So I feel very grateful for that. I really appreciated uh, having you on today, Deb. Thank you so much. Yeah, so you just mentioned, Deb, something that you're grateful for, and I was going to end with that. And just because it's Thanksgiving here, I thought it would be really appropriate for us to each say something that we're grateful for because I think that's part of a positive mindset as well and is to focus on all of the things that are are good in our lives so Joanne what are you thankful for this weekend what what's uh, something that you would write in your gratitude journal I'm thankful that I can get up and go for a walk or go to the gym or go for a hike um, so I am. I'm thankful for my for my health at this point. Mm. Yeah, and I started off the podcast talking about feeling a little tired about <laughs> vacation, but I'm really thankful for a vacation. And although it was busy, you know, we we did some. We got away to do some wine touring of some vineyards, and we ate a lot. And, I, and I'm just really thankful for you know that kind of abundance in my life. That that my life is so full that I'm tired. And, um, you know, I'm grateful for that. That's a great reframe, Sandy. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) I see I learned a few things today. (laughs) All right. Well, Deb, thanks so much for being on our podcast. And we'll put some of the things that you've talked about in our show notes and on our website at reframeyourlife.ca. And uh, especially some of those great quotes that you shared. I want to make sure to get those in in our notes for people to think and reflect on. So thank you very much and have a good weekend. You too. All right. Thanks. Hi, Life Reframers. Did you enjoy our episode today? If so, please leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also check us out on all our social media avenues via reframeyourlife.ca.